If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You're listening to the Sixth Sense Support with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Darnell, man, we're blessed, bro. We're blessed. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, we just, you know, some great guests coming on our show. What can I say? Yes, this is true. This is true. Uh, we have David Coises, uh, uh, author of Political Visions and Illusions here with us as a guest on our show today. So welcome. Welcome, David. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. Oh, wait, can we call you David or, or is it? Oh, doctor David or? is fine. David is fine. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, for our listeners who who don't know who you are, can you give a, a background on yourself? Yes, certainly. I'm a, I'm a, an academic political scientist. I taught uh, political science for thirty years at a, at a Christian university um, here in in Canada, and uh, um, I am originally from the states. I was born not not far from Chicago, but I've lived in Canada for. Um, Oh, about a third of a century now. So I'm a Canadian citizen. I feel quite thoroughly at, at home in this country now. It's an adopted country, to be sure. Um, my primary affiliation right now is with an organization called Global Scholars Canada. And I've been a member of them, uh, that group, for um, about a year now. And, uh, and I'm launching a, a fundraising campaign to support my work. And, and if anybody would like to be on my list of potential supporters, even if you can only support me with your prayers, then I would be very happy to, to, to have you, to inform you of what I'm doing on a, on a, on a regular basis. Um, I, the, the book started because my first year of teaching, I was uh, given the responsibility of teaching a course on political ideologies. This was back before the internet. Uh, you had to go through these orange hardbound volumes called Books in Print. And there were all lots of these volumes. Every year they would they would come out, and you had to look to find a, uh, a textbooks in 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 there. Um, I couldn't find a textbook that that did what I thought needed to be done in such a course as, at a Christian university. So eventually, around 1994, I started making um, uh, initial notes towards writing a book, and uh, and. The first edition was published in uh, 2003 by InterVarsity Press. Um, it sold, uh, it stole, sold steadily, which which I was very hap- happy about. And then um, in 2017, I proposed a um, second edition of the book, and uh, and that was was published uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, it was endorsed um, to my, you know great surprise, I suppose, but also gratitude by, by Tim Keller, who is a well-known um, Reformed minister, uh, the Presbyterian, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, and, so, and, then, and then it quickly sold out and is now in its third printing, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. And um, um, since the pandemic hit, I've had all sorts of opportunities to speak, uh, mo- almost entirely online. Okay, okay, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> It, it changes everything, right? It does. It, it opened <laughs> up new opportunities for me that I could hardly have imagined a few months earlier. Right, right. Uh, I know. And see, we found out about you through uh, the TGC article through uh, right. Bruce Ashford. Good friend, yes. And yes, and so so when when it came into my feed, 
I thought it was fascinating uh, because, well, the, the title alone, and I, and I think the title was uh, The Canadian... Uh, hold on. It is... Um, I got the, it. The intellectual in Canada who unmasked political ideology in that's America. Right. That, that's right. That's right. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so the, the, that, that, that's what uh, uh, came into my feed. And I was just like, oh, okay. This is definitely... Um, aligns with the sixth sense brand and what and the things that we talk about so i read it was really good and so i said okay okay let me go get this book so so i went out and i I, you know i purchased the book uh i have the second edition um actually has a really nice glossy kind of finish it's very nice yeah i I like it the the, the first edition the um the cover was a, a little bit busy but this one is it's very sleek it's very it looks like the it looks like the opening sequence to vertigo the, Hitch- the Hitchcock film. That's what. I- yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And it feels really nice. I was like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. This should be fun. And so, um, um, reading it, uh, I, I, the first thing that stuck out to me was your argument about how, um, poli- as as Christians, uh, these political, um, ideologies can become idolatry. And so, you know, we're we're hot off. Uh, for fresh off uh, the U S election. Um, and so, you know, Christians have been asking, and we did an episode uh, prior about, um, you know, the U S elections and, and um, one issue. Voting. One, yeah. Yeah. One issue voting. And so uh, can you kind of uh, like, just, just touch on um, the book and regards to your argument in regards to idolatry and I- idolatry and ideology? Yeah, yeah, and I think I can start with idolatry because you know when we read about idols in the Old Testament, for example, we read about um, uh, pagan peoples and also the people of Israel as well copying their neighbors, who uh, made fashioned gods out of out of wood and, and stone and various um, various other materials. Now, uh, in so doing, that didn't make that in no way made wood a bad thing or stone a bad thing. You know, it's it's in other words, the the things that people that people idolize are not in themselves bad, and generally they're they're good. Um, you know, you you have to have individual freedom, for example. This is something that, that liberalism champions. Uh, conservatism talks about tradition. Uh, you can you can hardly live you can't live a, a human life without tradition because most of, of who we are, we're, we're more like our parents than we're, than we're unlike them, even if we may rebel against them in our youth or, 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 or whatever. Um, you know, socialism, uh, um, common ownership. We, we already have common ownership in our society. We have multiple uh, subjects of, of, of ownership in our society corresponding to the diversity of various of social forms that we have um, in Canada, the United States, virtually anywhere in the world nowadays, and so what? And so, and 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 idolatry um, is taking something that's good, uh, taking something within God's creation, and elevating it in our hearts to the position of God Himself, and and that's that's what makes that's what makes for an idol. Uh, most of our idols are are much more subtle than the ones that the ancient Israelites were were, were tempted to um, uh, to follow to worship. Uh, maybe it's material success. Maybe it's uh, it's it's good sex. Maybe it's uh, um, you know uh, pleasures in life. You know all of these things are are good, but 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 they're not God. And if we if we um, 
if we uh, have a disproportionate love for these things, and if other things take a back seat to these things, then we know that we're in the realm of, of idolatry. And I think that's true of the major political ideologies that, we, um, that have dominated the Western world for the last, what, maybe 200-some years. Yes. Yes, no, and and you know, we could definitely see how polarized not just uh you know U- U.S. politics have been, but also Canadian as well. Uh, and so, yeah, it, but this is good. This is good, and and I think this will be helpful for our listeners uh to not shy away from the discussion of um church and state and um and so forth. So the the article that um the article opened up some other channels for us in, in regards to how um, other channels in regards to, you know, your research. And one of the things I, we came across was um, a lecture you did on how um, liberty um, can be. Um, I, Libertarianism can, suppresses. Yeah. Liberty. So, so yeah. So, so in, in the realm of liber- libertarianism, suppressing liberty, that, that to me, to me, that sounds like oxymoron. Yes, it would to most people, I think. Yeah. Um, so, so can, can you unpack that idea? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, under liber- liber- libertarianism is, is really a, a form of liberalism. It's an early form of liberalism. Um, if you followed my argument in Chapter 2 of Political Visions and Illusions, you may remember that I talked about five stages in the development of, of liberalism, beginning with the, the Hobbesian commonwealth, and uh, the Hobbesian refers to the the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, uh, the, mm-hmm. um, the the night watchman state, uh, the um, um, the the uh, the regulatory state, the uh, uh, equal opportunity state, and then what I've called the choice enhancement state, which is the latest uh, stage in the development of liberalism since about no well, maybe about 1960. And so libertarianism really tries to shift the clock back to the night watchman state, in which the state becomes very small, at least ideally that's supposed to be the case. Um, it, it refrains very largely from interfering in economic life, especially in the operations of the free market. And, uh, um, and, and the expectation is that, is that somehow the state will remain uh, um, will remain as as small as it possibly can. It, it can be. be. It's, a, it's a limited state in which individuals have a, a very large latitude for uh, for their activities, economic and otherwise. Mm-hmm. And and I think I, I was listening to the the lecture on that, and I think um, to some extent you drew, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you do a little drew a little bit of parallel with you know the idea that as Christians f- coming under God. Um, we, we, to some extent, um, need the guardrails to actually have more liberty. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's, that's something that, um, I think, uh, probably the most, the most, um, astute philosophers have understood down through the years that, that, that liberty um, is not just the right to do whatever we please. And unfortunately, that's the way that, that, that liberty has been defined um, in, in our society, at least for the last 
maybe 50 or 60 years, but I think, I think it has roots even before that. So, you know, the, the, the right to do something, the, the, the idea that somehow we can shape the world to conform to our own desires. And that means that somehow we can shape the people around us to conform to our own desires as well. And if we have to use the state to, uh, to persuade these people to go along with that, then, then so be it. So there was, a, there was a man by the name of Patrick Deneen at, at University of Notre Dame, which is my, uh, my alma mater, and he wrote a, a, a book a couple of years ago called Why Liberalism Failed. And it's a brilliant book because he really shows that, um, that the, um, uh, uh, both sides of liberalism, whether it's the, the, the status variety or the, um, or the libertarian variety, both lead in the direction, ultimately, of the omnicompetent state. And if we take seriously liberalism's view that, um, that the state is a kind of contract that's formed by sovereign individuals, then if those sovereign individuals change their minds, if they prefer uh, to have a, a limited state, then so be it. But if those sovereign individuals say, well, we want the state not simply to be limited, but we want the, we want the state to advance our liberties, to advance our choices, to, the, to advance, to, to expand the options that we have to be able to choose in life. That would take a very large state to be able to do that. And that explains the current states that we're in, the, the choice enhancement state, and the idea that, that we should all have as many options as possible in life. And if we don't, then somehow our liberties are being violated. We're being oppressed in some fashion. Whereas prior to I don't know, 1960, maybe it's the post-World War II era, uh, the idea that, that we would all have the same options or equal options would have been virtually unthinkable because the world isn't built like that. Um, there are constraints, there are real constraints, there are natural constraints, there are, there are social constraints, there are um, political constraints, the economic constraints of all sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just the fact a fact of life. There's a quote in, I have from the book, on page 53 on liberalism and you see and and you basically summarize it like this the irony as patrick deenan points out is that the more completely the sphere of autonomy is secured the more comprehensive the state must become and to me it sounded like you were saying that ultimately this political view uh, creates the problem it's trying to solve um liberty over authority yeah, that's right. That's right. Because because liberalism takes one side of the of the equation. They take they take the individual. Whereas in reality individuals do not exist by themselves. And when we do get together, it's not always because we have chosen to get together. For example, um you know, in the 10 commandments we we read that uh, we are to honor our parents who have brought us into into the world. Uh, you know, there there there's there's probably no relationship besides family that is less amenable to the liberal or, or, or the libertarian worldview. Because we do not choose mm -hmm. our families. We are born within a particular, within a particular um, um, birth family. And that's, that's, you know, but nevertheless, we have obligations. Um, my father died in, in August. He, he was 92 years old. And since that time, I'm taking, taking every, every day, I take out a, a, a 
few, at least a few minutes to to call my mother and talk to her via FaceTime because I believe that as a son that's my that's my responsibility. I'm not living close to her. She's living with one of my sisters right now, but but I believe that as as a son it's my responsibility. I did not choose my mother. Um, I did not choose my father. I did not choose my siblings. But nevertheless, I am responsible um, uh, to some degree to 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 my my birth family as well as to the family that I started with my wife. Yeah, I'm, I I was just going to say, I, like with regards to the you know libertarianism, liberalism, um, I I wonder um, to some extent, like you know, you when you talk about the five states um, of liberalism and you get into choice enhancement state. You know, I, I sort of see a bit of the progressivism, you know, um, playing a role there because I think about um, some of the roots of libertarianism and, and liber- liberalism being about negative rights and so much has become about positive rights. Um, and, and I think the, you know, from my perspective, the positive rights stuff is well beyond any sort of libertarian view. Um, That's right. And, yes. And so... Yeah, I believe. Uh, yeah, no, I, I believe that's true. But I, but I think um, um, if if we view the individual as sovereign, which which is what in what liberalism does, then the seeds of the choice enhancement state, I think, are there from the very beginning. You know, now in the in, at the beginning, liberalism was 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 moderated by older points of view. Even in somebody like John Locke, mm-hmm. uh, the, um, the the 17th century philosopher who was so influential on Thomas Jefferson when he uh, wrote his Declaration of Independence in 1776. Um, even in somebody like, uh, like, like like John Locke, we see the the beginnings of what might be called the choice enhancement state. So for 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 Locke, the state is a product of a contract, but he also very strongly hints that marriage is a mere contract that can be um, that can be dissolved at least once the, the children are out of the the home and fending for themselves. Oh, sorry, he, he, sorry, he was arguing that it, that marriage can be dissolved. It can be. Once yes, that's right. Yes, very strongly was removed. Yeah, over the children has has ended, and and and, and so the idea of trying to take everything, every uh, human community or relationship, and trying to make of it a kind of a kind of exchange relationship, almost like a market relationship, is very tempting to to modern libertarians, uh, people like like Hayek. Uh, people like uh, perhaps uh, Ludwig von Mises to try to make as many of these relationships similar to market relationships as possible. And if you try to stretch that, if you try to stretch it so that the only reason that um, that one should uh, um, hamper somebody's uh, right to do something or to or to entrench on somebody's right to do something is is uh, is is if they try to harm somebody else. That is not a principle that can be taken very far, at least in very many communities. So, for example, the institutional church. If you're a member of the church, now then, then that means that that at least in principle you are under that church congregation's discipline. And if you do something that that egregiously violates biblical norms, you can expect to fall under the discipline of the the, the elders, session or the cons- yeah the elders, the consistory, whatever whatever they would call it, the council. You would fall on, under the discipline. So the, a church membership is not predicated on the notion that you know you can do anything you want as long as you don't harm other church members. 
So the very principle, yeah, the, the principle that we can trace back to John Stuart Mill, that the only reason why um, uh, individual liberty should be limited is to prevent harm to others, that is not something that, that, can, that, can be, um, that, that can be applicable to very many communities. You might be able to do that at least for a time with the state. But because uh, liberal ideology tends to be um, totalistic, is not going to be patient for very for very long with communities that have tighter standards of membership mm-hmm. than the state will allow. Well, and yeah. and I would say the one thing, like from the libertarian perspective, the it doesn't prevent voluntary submission to additional contracts, right? And so you could argue the membership is a contract, and so like because if you determine, well, you were going to punish me in a way that I don't want, well, exclusion is the solution. Um, you, you sort of dissolve the contract. So, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely, um, see the, like the point you're trying to make, because of course, like, you know, there, there becomes more. And I think, um, to some extent, like there's a quote that I think sort of applies that I say a lot. It's like within my own family, I'm a socialist within my community. I'm a, okay, conser- yeah. or I'm, I'm a liberal within my city. I'm a conservative within my province. I'm I'm a libertarian, and within my country, I'm an anarchist. And the idea being, <laughs> the idea okay. just being like, you yeah. know, why should someone yeah. in BC have any influence on how I live here, right? But the, those that are closer to me, I want to have influence on them, and they have influence on me because I know they have my interest that in that they can actually see my interest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and see, see, I think you're you're expressing. Um, in a way that I probably wouldn't assent to completely, but I think you're expressing something that I that I um, um, bring out in the latter chapters of my book. You know, as to as to um, as to the the what I call the pluriformity of communities in which we find ourselves, and that different standards apply within each of those communities. Mm-hmm. So yes, you know, the family and the family, um, there's a common refrigerator, a common cupboard that everybody takes from. You know, as they have needs. Common bank account. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, that that's exactly right. Yeah. So and, and you know so so in a very small community, you can have something like common ownership of property being taken to a to a very large um to a very um to a very wide extent. But the larger your community comes, bec- the larger community becomes, it becomes more uh, difficult to um to have um uh, uh a wide latitude of, of, of common ownership. So, you know, to try to take a principle that's applicable to the family and apply it to a country that's maybe 100 million people, um, that, that, that simply isn't going to work. Now, as it relates to the article uh, by, by Bruce Ashford, he, he mentions your views on being a conservative and how um, one moment, I'll get the quote here. One second. Okay. Yeah, so um, in the article, Bruce Esford says, you said this about con- being a conservative. Yet, as Coises notes, conservatism isn't a single, stable, or unified ideology we can encapsulate in an identifiable doctrinal position. It doesn't even qualify strictly as an ideology since it tends to feed off of other ideologies. Its tendency is to conserve, and usually it seeks to conserve a particular era in a nation's cultural heritage. 
conservatism tends to defy or deify a certain era in national life and ascribe evil to grand social reform agendas. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think um, um, that, that's, that's Bruce's way of, of, of expressing my argument. And uh, yeah, I mean, some, some people will say that conservatism um, is not an ideology at all. And, um, you know, I, I, I think if, there, if the good to be found in conservatism is that it very sensibly counsels caution. Mm. Uh, you know, don't upend the whole um, apple cart, if you will, in, in the interest of reform. So you know that uh, as a as a kind of counsel of caution, I think it, it conservatives have a valuable uh, role to play. I think they I think they they make a genuine contribution. It's when we start probing them a little bit more um, um, uh, carefully that, that we'll find a lot of variation. You know, so so they'll they'll say, well, let's let's be careful what we're doing. But then, if you ask them, well, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Then they will not be able to tell you, or they may tell you, but different conservatives will tell you different things. So, in in that respect, conservatism is uh, it, it it cannot be reduced to a particular set of principles because those principles are going to are going to going to change depending on whom we whom we um, whom we're talking to. So, you know, the first thing I used to tell my students, the first thing that you tell somebody who claims to be a conservative is what is it that you're trying to conserve? And different conservatives are going to give you different answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. well, no, I was going to say that uh, that point, especially in your book, that's the point that changed my perspective on 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 how I use the word conservative um, and conservative, conservatism. And so... Like, I guess because I'm reformed in my theology and we have a tight exegesis, right? So we're very stringent on how the t- scriptures are handled and it's kind of a, a conservative conservative approach, right? Right, um, right. Right. So if it's not in the text, so, solo, solo scriptura. If it's not in the text, yeah, we're not messing with right. it. Right, so, yes. right, so yes, that's, that's right. That's, that's right. the school yes. thought I'm coming from, and so it starts to flow into other aspects, um, into my um, into my economics and, and my political thought and so forth. But right, right, but right. the way how this has um, changed my mind on on how I how I how I use this term and how I apply it to myself is, you made an argument about um, at some point, like to to get to being a conservative. You have to be progressive. There, there was a stage of being a progressive to get right. to be conservative. So, of course, in the in the argument I think you used was the reformers. The reformers had to be progressive. That's they had right. to be progressive to get to be conservative by opposing um, the Catholic Church and and starting the Reformation. And I was just like, ah, I was like, he's right. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm finished. Yeah. <laughs> so so now so now thanks to you <laughs> david i'm like okay <laughs> you know using that term I'm, yeah. I'm i'm very skeptical um and i kind of push away from it so i i don't go by that title anymore so thank you yeah, yeah. Th- thank you for yeah, well, you're me. very welcome yes 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Koizas the Liberator. Yes, the liber- right? the liberator. That's good. Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe I'll adopt it in my moniker, you know, <laughs> put it in my email signatures. <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, no, it, it was big. And 
Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say there's a couple of quotes that I've heard that, or, or things that, that resonate really well with it. One is uh, there's a quote from a, a guy that says, conservatism is progressivism wearing seatbelts. Um, and the, the other thing was we, we did, a, we yeah. did a, a, an episode on a book called The Three Language of Politics. And he says the conservatism sort of axis is between civility and barbarism. And I thought it resonates really well with, to some extent, what you're saying, because they're trying to conserve because any sort of change is like deemed as like you're, you're trending toward barbarism, you're trending toward disorder and you're ruining, you're lifting or flipping over the apple cart of civility that we currently have. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, and in reality, I mean, I mean, we are always at once progressing and conserving, you know, even, even people who call themselves progressives. With, with no qualification whatsoever, are still, there are still many things they want, they want to conserve, even if they're not admitting it. You know, um, democratic forms of government, uh, you know, parliamentary debate rather than people throwing, um, I don't know, um, eggs at each other or what, what have you. You know, they, 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 even within, they, they are presupposing a whole edifice of, uh, of civilization that has come before them. So even progressives or don't want to abandon that, but they but they differ with the conservatives as to as to what should be abandoned and what should um, should should um, what should be what should be preserved. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, conservatives and uh, professed progressives are are do not really have clear criteria by which to judge what to conserve and what to progress to. And this is why I think that whole progressive. Um, Conservative. I don't want to talk about the Progressive Conservative Party, if you will, but the Progressive slash Conservative uh, 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 controversy, if if you will. You know, the the, the age old fight. Um, it's really uh, it's it's sterile. It 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 cannot really go any, anywhere. It's it's not going to. Um, it it may be kind of a. Um, uh, a, a cover for a kind of thoughtlessness or, or a mere pragmatism that is not aware, not conscious of first principles that are governing our activities in the political realm or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and and I guess for me, like, it's helpful because you see in all areas of life how we go from revolution uh, to being conservative and just and just the natural flow of life how things progress now of course you know there are um things we should fight for um to uh, preserve there are some truths and values and principles that 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 we should try to preserve but i think it's important to uh like you said ask the question what is it what exactly are we trying to to preserve right um the 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 um when does life start an abortion Right, the sanctity of life—that's important um, to preserve, and so forth. Um, from from a Christian conviction, so yeah, that that was really helpful. Yeah, yeah, and and then we need to again, we need to have some principles to decide what do we conserve and 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 what do we abandon, and and and, and conservatism itself won't give you those principles. Right, you have to look elsewhere to find yes. them. Yes, yes, and and that's why you know, and of course, everybody's listening. They're like, oh, what? So what? Donald's not reformed anymore. Hey, man. I'm I'm still reformed in my theology. Okay, it's just that um, when it comes to my politics and my economics, um, I got to do a lot more listening and a um, and and less talking. So so on a on a previous episode, I think it was the three languages one. I made the point that um, I feel like Christians sort of 
just found themselves in the conservative camp because of sort of what you're saying. There's no real identifiable doctrines or, or ideas, but because of where, you know, America and North America sort of came from the last couple hundred years of trajectory and, and Christianity sort of being the, you know, the norm or the social um, popular approach or way of life. Yeah. Um, would you agree with that? Or do you see that the, the Christian uh, conservative alignment has some other, uh, um, rationale to it well it's you know there there is a sense in which christians are traditionalists and i'm, I'm going to use that in, in the a, a broad sense of of accepting what has been handed down to us <laughs> you know so so insofar you know if you're if you're catholic or orthodox you would uh um, believe that there's some kind of a great tradition maybe uh Partially written, partially oral, oral that's being handed down through the through the last two millennia to uh, to modern Christians. If you're on the Reformed side, you're more likely to talk about about the Bible as being our our ultimate authority for for faith and life. You know, and that's something that's handed down to us. When we read the Bible, we are reading. Uh, a collection of very ancient documents, you know, not, uh, diverse literatures, but we believe that there's a central story that's holding it all together. You know, that that in itself is a is a, is a kind of conservative sensibility because we are assuming that this very ancient document, that known as the as the, the Holy Scriptures, uh, contain something that, that that we need to follow. So there's a kind of instinct that grows out of that. Yes. But of course, traditions are are going to vary. Tremendously, you know, in the American South, uh, prior to the 1960s, huge numbers of Christians, uh, Southern Baptists, Southern Methodists, Southern Presbyterians, and, and the like, who uh, um, who nevertheless accepted racial segregation and, and would not want to have an African American in the, in in their churches. You know, well, where did that come from? Um, they they were they were con they were deferring to a tradition of of racial segregation that went back to slavery prior to 1865 and and to the bringing of the first um, slaves to the America, to, um, to America in, in 1619. You know, that, that was an, an old tradition that which they had not evaluated in a, in a spiritually discerning way. Yes, and because Joel was referencing uh, an, an episode we did on the three languages of politics talking across the political uh, divide, which was by Arnold Kling. I'm not sure if you've heard of the book. Uh, and so the book was arguing that um, there isn't a particular each each put each of the three particular views of progressive being progressive, conservative, and and lib, uh, libertarian. Um, each each one has a value. Each one has a value a, a virtue um, to each of them, and so that's why we shouldn't be so close fisted. Um, but what I love about your book is that now it starts to say, okay, well. Let's not talk about the virtues. Let's talk about the vices and how these political ideas can become vices. And I was just like, "Ooh, okay, this is a flip side, and this is a conversation um, that needs to be had in light of um, the U.S. election that that we just saw." Yeah, so this was really good. If you had a deep reading of my book, you'll also note that I also admit that the ideologies are right about about one particular thing mm, right and it's you know so it's not it's not just talking about vices it's talking about virtues but i think it was it was gk chesterton who said that um 
that um, you know our age, speaking about the early 20th century, is not devoid of virtues. It's 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 taken one virtue and it's and it's and it's um it's it's made everything out of it. You know, it run roughshod over everything else, is the way that Chesterton put it. And in a sense, I think that's what I'm trying to to do in my book as well to to recognize. I don't use the language of virtues, but I do use the language of. Uh, you know, of, of creation, of creation order, if you will. Something in creation they general, genuinely see as being of value, but, they, but they, they esteem it too highly, and that's where they start to move into the, into the realm of idolatry. Okay. So, so, you know, as you're reading it, recognize that each of these ideologies has something genuine to offer. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yeah. you, okay, so you say that, so now we have to move on. Now we have to talk about socialism and you can talk okay. about the virtues of socialism. Right, right. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, you had a, um, a discussion you did on YouTube uh, called, it was called the, how, how socialism suppresses society. And in it, uh, you made some remarks saying that um, host, it's hostility to property and nonetheless, all variations of socialism have in common an impulse toward um, coercing society toward material equality and communal property ownership. Although these factors are economic, they can't be realized without the exertion of political force. So can you unpack that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe maybe I can just back up a moment and and. and indicate that when I, when I was about maybe 20 years old, I, I regarded myself as a socialist. Um, that was something that I had, uh, was in it, you know, briefly captivated by it because it seemed to be, if you look at, at social democratic parties in Germany and Scandinavian countries and so forth, it seemed as though people were fairly comfortable there, there wasn't a lot of poverty and the like, and it seemed to be that that, that was the way to go. Um, I didn't stay in that camp for very long, as it, as it turned out, because I was, uh, at that point, I was looking a little bit more deeply than just a kind of economic system, if you will, because socialism is more than just an economic system. In the, in the same way you can say that liberalism is more than more than a political system, you have to, to dig down into the heart. There, there's much going on on that deep spiritual level um, within the ideologies and the followers of these ideologies. So socialism, I, I do not believe that it's wrong to champion communal ownership of property. Um, you know, I've, I visited a, um, a group not too far from Cambridge um, called the Brethren of Early Christianity that, that is characterized by a, a, a wide um, range of common ownership. It's a, it's a kind of communal, it's a kind of... Um, um, uh, a Hutterite-inspired community in, in southern Ontario. And uh, I'm very impressed with what they were doing there, but a lot of the people are related to each other. There are, there, there are, are, are families, whole families that are, that are part of that. Um, once you start getting into a larger community, uh, the, the area of life that can, that can be communally centered is, is going to shrink necessarily. So in a in a country like the Soviet Union, where they where they attempted to bring about communal ownership of property on a on a vast scale, it did not work because people did not know each other. The levels of trust outside of family networks were very um, were very weak, at, at least in many parts of of the Russian Empire. So when there was an attempt to try to implement socialism, it it it, um, it ended up foundering and and. After 70 years, it pretty much ran out of steam, and it couldn't, it couldn't continue to function in that same way. Now, what socialists neglect to recognize is that we already have communal ownership of property in our societies. 
Mm. But we what but we have a variety of communities that can be said to own property. So the family home, you know, my wife and daughter and I are owners of our, our, our home. You know, it belongs to us. It's, it's uh, the subject of communal ownership. It doesn't just belong to me. You know, I'm, I'm not a, an ancient Roman, you know, patriarch <laughs> who's, who's wielding, uh, you know, that owns everybody and everything that, that's in. No, it's, it's, there's a family, and the family can be said to own the, this home. Uh, the same if you could talk about uh, a, a university, uh, you know, maybe Tyndale University um, in, in Toronto. Uh, they, they own property. It's a corporate kind of ownership of property. If you go to the, the, um, the, the, the Ford plant, just where the 403 branches off from the, uh, from the Queen Elizabeth Way in, um, mm-hmm. in um, is that Oakville, I think it is, you know, that, that, that property is owned by the Ford, Ford Motor Company. So there are a variety of, of communities that own property. What socialists want to try to do is to try to eliminate all those and consolidate those into one single subject of ownership which they label the community with a capital C. And so, you know, when I I came to recognize that in my my younger years, I recognized, oh, wait a minute. Socialists are not trying to bring about our, you know, to, to replace individual ownership with communal ownership. But basically, what we already have is a kind of mix. And this is something that Aristotle already recognized 2,500 years ago. Um, economists, um, uh, Joel, you're the economist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, <laughs> like that's right. So, so. Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, we, we call it a mixed economy. So in Canada, we have crown corporations, but crown corporations are not the whole of our economy. We have, we have private enterprise, we have uh, small businesses, we have family-run businesses, we have uh, uh, you know, large corporations, we, we do have crown corporations, we have government departments and so forth, we have national, provincial, and municipal parks that are, that are operated by our various levels of government on behalf of the citizens as a whole. So it's a, we, have a, we have diverse economies, diverse polities in, in that sense. The socialism wants to try to eliminate all that complexity and to try to, to compress all that into a single communal form. Economics, there's this term called tragedy of the commons. Exactly. And, and things like, you know, even just let's, let's use a park, which is a relatively sort of simple, commonly owned, you know, property. The, 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 the tragedy of the commons is that people consume the product more than they actually put back into it. And so exactly. you deteriorate the product over time. And so I think this is sort of, you get, as you see that scaling out to your point, like the bigger the community that they try to yeah, put yeah. this across, the, the, that problem becomes compounded because there's nobody exactly. to, to custodian the asset. And, and, you know, I think, you know, giving a little bit of pushback, I would say the the scenarios you described with like a corporation or, or different scenarios, right. those are to some extent voluntary and the ability to leave and be compensated exists. Um, yes, that, that's and, right. And so those those scenarios, um, I think the tragedy of the commons is, is more so uh, not occurring, but maybe there's a bad manager that you've hired um, and, and that's right. a different problem. Right. Yeah, so what that means is that, is that for common property that, that's genuinely common to large numbers of citizens, such as parklands and, and, and so forth, uh, or, or pasture lands, if you're talking about a small village, you know, that, that some person or some group needs to be, put, be given responsibility over the commons. You know, so, so you can't just have a kind of anarchic, um, you know, everybody's going to be responsible, we'll all 
point that you have to have schedules. If you were, if you go to university and you're living with a with a with a whole s- series of other other students and you have a common living space, you'll probably put a schedule as to who's going to clean the kitchen, who's going to clean the bathrooms, you know, thing, things like that. You have to have a, an actual person or a group of people that are going to take responsibility for that. And the larger such a thing comes becomes the more that particular group will have to exercise a certain mm-hmm. amount of coercion in order yes. to keep people um, you know, t- t- fulfilling their duties, their responsibilities on a regular, r- regular basis. And of course, in the Soviet Union, you know, people, uh, people did not necessarily work very hard for these communal farms or state farms or, or you know, these, these, these state corporations, state factories, and so forth. And they said, well, you know, they, they, there, was, there were jokes, these kind of um, gallows humor that, was, that, was, um, uh, that Russians would come up with. And they said, well, you know, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work, is the way yeah, they put it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, so it's uh, <laughs> not being paid in hard currency at that time because the ruble was not... Um, was not uh, um, exchangeable on the open market you know so they say well they they pretend to pay us we pretend to work and that mm-hmm. that's typically what's going to happen in that kind of a society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no and now bruce ashford was talking about christian solutions and how we can um better um do better political involvement and so one of the things he was talking about and you talk about in your book as well the the principle of subsidiarity exactly affirming right. civil society and sphere sovereignty we did an episode on sphere sovereignty oh great okay. uh, with uh joe boot oh yes yes that's yes right. yes we, we did that with joe yes. boot uh, okay. that was that, actually that, that episode was well received great. Um, because yeah. these were these were kind of new ideas to our listeners and and so he goes on to say about you um bruce ashford he says that as coises does in the last several chapters of political visions and illusions we should work together to construct a non-ideological alternative for Christians who wish to recognize God's sovereignty over the nation and draw upon our Christianity to work for the common good. That's right, yes. Can you, can you unpack right, that for yeah. us? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and I think we need to be careful because I, you know, in, in using that, I'm not simply talking about transforming society. You know, I'm, I'm talking about recognizing the realities of our society as they current exist, currently exist. Doesn't mean that reform is off the is off the table. No, but but you know whether we're talking about conserving or reforming, which I think have to go together in some fashion. That we need to be aware that our societies are diverse. There's a diversity of structures. I I have this term that I use called societal pluriformity, or the pluriformity of authorities, as I express it in my second book, We Answer to Another. Uh, you know, the pluriformity of, of authorities, it means that, there's, that, that we are embedded in a variety of communities. And we're not just individuals, floating individuals, entering into market relations or contractual relations with people, but we are embedded in a whole variety of communities. And that's for the better, it's, it's, for, it's for the best. It means that if we talk about if we talk about our calling as, as as Christians, some people think you know, especially young people. If if I talk to them about their callings, they think I'm talking about their careers, about their work life. That's only a small part of our total calling as as those who are created in God's image. So my calling as a, as a human being is. Um, you know, as, as, as an author, at, at one time it was as a teacher. I'm still doing teaching, but mostly it's online and it's taking place um, 
around the world now. Um, I'm, a, I'm a husband to my wife. That's, that's a calling. I'm a, I'm a father to my daughter. That is a calling. I'm a, I'm a son to my, to my, my elderly mother. That, that's a calling. They're all, I'm, I'm a member of my church, and I have a calling with respect to my church congregation as well. So in what might be called a mature, differentiated society, uh, we recognize that no one institution has the final say. Let me repeat that again, because I think that's very important. No one institution has the final say. Now, we sometimes think that, oh, well, maybe the state does, maybe government does, but it doesn't, only within its particular sphere. Now, right now, with this pandemic, we're in some, uh, something of an extraordinary um, period of time, because governments are taking uh, measures that they would not otherwise take if there were not some kind of an emergency. So during the two world wars, governments took um, took uh, um, they took uh, 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 emergency powers that they could not have taken during during peacetime, uh, you know, and and that's basically the way that it has to be. Right now, governments are taking imposing quarantines, uh, lockdowns, and so forth, and that's to try to keep the, the public safe. Once the emergency is passed, if government tries to hold on to those powers, then we know that, that, that something is amiss. Then we know that, it, that, it, that it's, it's going too far. Mm-hmm. And and I think some people would claim that we're in that place now, but uh, some people do claim that, yes. That it is a different conversation. Yes. 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 Now, you use the term subsidiarity, and you define it as this in your book. Uh, subsid- subsidiarity thus means that tasks are to be fulfilled by the lowest element in social hierarchy. And only when this proves impossible is a higher community, such as the state, justified in stepping in and offering assistance. Uh, once matters are set right, however, the higher community must then withdraw. Subsidiarity was deemed important for the maintaining a healthy, for maintaining a healthy social order in which all parts may retain their vitality and initiative over against the threat of an om, omnipotent or om, omnicompetent, omnicompetent state. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and let me say a few words about subsidiarity because it's a, it's a term that comes out of Catholic social teachings, beginning especially with Pope Leo the Thirteenth, who was on the the papal throne between um, 1878 and I believe it was 1902 or 1903, and he um, produced a body of of papal encyclicals these are pastoral letters that are published by the popes down through the down through the centuries and if taken together um, they form a body of what what is called come to be called catholic social teachings drawing on the traditions of the church drawing on thomas aquinas uh, to some degree aristotle going back um, back, back uh, 2500 years ago and uh, and and it presupposes a hierarchical notion of society so with god at the top there is the institutional church um, uh, underneath God. There is the state, but uh, below the state you have certain intermediary communities or mediating structures. Below mm-hmm. that you have individuals, and so in that kind of a hierarchical arrangement, subsidiarity is meant to try to uh, defend the lower levels against the higher levels uh, 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 interfering uh, too much in in their lives. So subsidiarity is something that that was tailor made for for Catholic social principles. Now, I, I, do you want me to talk about sphere sovereignty because that that presupposes a somewhat different um, 
uh, a different social ontology, if, if you will. But, uh, uh, yes, please. Yeah, okay. So sphere sovereignty, going back to Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was the, uh, the Dutch polymath. Uh, you know, he was, a, he was an academic. He was a pastor. He was a uh, university um, administrator. He was, a, he was prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905. He was born in 1837 and died in, in 1920, just one, 100 years ago, um, this month, I believe. And, um, and and he came up with this notion of in Dutch of souvereignty in kring, or or sovereignty in its own sphere, often and somewhat terribly inelegantly shortened to sphere sovereignty. Um, you know, it's not a term that speaks to uh, to English speakers in, in any way, but it it presupposes a less hierarchical social ontology. So the idea is that all of these communities in which we find ourselves embedded, and also we as individuals relate directly to God, receiving our authority directly from God himself. And God has delegated uh, a certain degree of his authority to all of these agents that we find in society. So to schools, to, to states, to, to, to church congregations, to families, to marriages, to uh, indeed to individuals, to, uh, to a, a whole variety of other kinds of communities, business enterprises, labor unions, and the like, uh, which, which have an important role to play, all of which have important roles to play in a smoothly functioning society. And so sphere sovereignty, uh, it, it doesn't mean that there are hard and fast walls between the different spheres of society because in reality they are all mixed together in some in some way and each of us as an individual is involved in a variety of overlapping communities but it does mean that uh, a business enterprise uh, should be following uh, the what, what should we say, the created creational structure for a business enterprise. And that's to provide a service to the public uh, in exchange for, for, uh, for fair compensation, usually determined by, by some kind of value that's determined in the market. Um, you know, a school has a task to educate children. Uh, government has the responsibility to do public justice. And public justice doesn't mean the government does everything. It means that it, um, it, no, yeah, I mean that that itself. If if government becomes totalitarian, then it's 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 egregiously violating justice. And so, uh, uh, under this notion of sphere sovereignty, government recognizes that all of these other communities have their legitimate spheres of authority that um, governing authorities ought not to interfere with. Under most circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, what about like in instances where? Uh, the church, their sphere of sovereignty um, might sometimes overlap with the political uh, sphere of sovereignty of the state. Okay, what what are you thinking of in particular? Uh, so like, okay, so um, in your book, uh, you say that, in other words, in contrast to the subsi subsidiarity function functionaries of the institutional church would not intervene in an ostensibly subordinate institution and set matters aright from without the political problem would be addressed precisely politically and its solution would come from within the body politic which was acknowledged to stand directly and immediately under god's sovereignty right right yeah um i don't remember the exact context in which which i in which I, I was yeah. talking about uh, Calvin, and Calvin himself was far from approving uh, such action and yes, talking about that's what I thought, Calvin yeah. 
um, and yeah. the state. Yeah, it it has to do the the point that I was making there is that is that um, you know to to keep the state in line, uh, there has to be some kind of constitutional governance. You know, and by constitutional, I don't mean necessarily a written document. So you know, Canada did not have a written entrenched constitutional document until 1982. Um, Great Britain does not have a written constitution, neither does New Zealand, um, neither neither do Saudi Arabia and Israel. I'm not sure that I'd want to hold up Saudi Arabia as a particularly positive example of, of this. But, but you know, for, for constitution, I think as Canadians, we can understand constitution in a larger sense than most Americans would. So it's more than just a document, but it, it's, it's the whole political culture in a, in, in a sense. It's the whole um, complex of traditions that have shaped our, our political community over the course of many generations. So, you know, you can have a, a paper constitution that's, that's, that's perfect in its, in, on paper, but it doesn't function well in reality because the traditions of that, uh, 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 the, the, the traditions of the real constitution are not supportive of that particular document. So, and I think that's what in Canada we can probably understand that better than than Americans can, um, you know. But how's, but how but, so? Well, be, because many of our our constitutional issues have nothing to do with what's in our constitution acts. You really? know, if well, yeah, oh, absolutely. The prime minister is not mentioned in in either of our constitution acts. Um, the cabinet is not mentioned in our constitution acts. The queen, the governor general, the Pre queen's privy council for Canada, those are mentioned. But the central players in our political system are nowhere mentioned in our constitution acts. So, sorry. So, what are the implications of that? Well, the implications of that are, th are that that we follow, um, you know, conventions of the constitution. These are unwritten conventions, as it were, that are are very important to the smooth functioning of our political system. You know, so so many of our the the constitutional issues that arise, for example, between the federal and the provincial governments, you know, we do have sections 91 and 92, which lay out the respective um, jurisdictions of uh, the federal and, and provincial governments. But very often, the waters are muddy, and we have to rely on um, on written conventions to to, um, to 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 guide us. And you know, whatever whatever constitution it looks like whether we're talking about a written document or we're talking about the complex of traditions and conventions that that regulate life in in uh, in our political community we're talking about constraints on governments we're talking about limits on government there was a 19th century russian um don't know who said it it's it's, it's anonymous if you look on these these quotation pages he said our, our, every, he said every country has its constitution, but ours, meaning the Russians, ours is absolutism moderated by assassination. <laughs> you know, if you have to go that far, you know, if, if you have absolutism, and the only way you can, get, get, you can limit an absolute government is by assassination, then something is obviously wrong. And so in, I think in our English-speaking democracies, we have had a very long tradition going back many centuries, at least to 1215 in Magna Carta. Um, you know, Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, you know, countries that, are, that, are, that have inherited a very strong constitutional tra tradition going back many centuries. And those are what put um, the, the limits on our, our, our political actors. And they can't, they can't be created out of nothing. Fascinating. Yeah, no, because I, I guess what I was just thinking in regards to um, 
of course, you know, with the lockdowns and so forth and social, especially in social justice issues, that there's always a call on the church to um, intervene in things that might be a political issue. So, for example, police brutality. Yes, yes. Right. right? So, so police yes. brutality is not a church issue. It's it's a state issue. Yes, but if you if you uh, if you read the 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 postscript to my to my book, the second edition wasn't in the first edition, but this is something that I added specifically for the for the second edition. It's uh, a concluding a concluding ecclesiological postscript about the role of the institutional church vis-a-vis political life. Now, I think I think um, a church as an institution has the responsibility to educate its members about what justice is and what justice justice demands. Uh, I don't think an ecclesiastical assembly, whether it's a, you know, a synod or general assembly or whatever they call it, should be making a pronouncement on, say, the $15 per hour minimum wage. Because I think that is something that needs to be, um, it, it's something that, that our actual office holders, public office holders, need to deliberate about. Because that's more of a prudential judgment. Okay, what is, what is a fair minimum wage? And what can we set it without um, impoverishing the workers and, or without um, exacerbating unemployment? And that's something that, that only pe- economists are more likely to be able to tell us. Um, how to strike a balance than, say, an ecclesiastical assembly or, or a minister preaching from a pulpit. But on the other hand, a minister has a responsibility to, uh, to uh, you know, if there's a police officer in his congregation who is brutalizing uh, people on, on the streets, then that church has a responsibility to step in and discipline that member. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a... Um you know, an interesting dilemma, especially in today, you know, when you start talking about the constitution, I was thinking about the constitutional challenge that was made um, with regards to getting churches to reopen. Um, right, and I, right. you know, when you said some of the things aren't in our constitution, you know, yeah, it just yeah. instantly took me to, okay, so how do you, de- you know, how do you really deliberate an issue that starts to become a constitutional challenge when there's no documentation? Um, you know, to some extent, you could argue. You know, you, you go back to the the common law sort of precedent approach. Uh, yeah, but if you have right, no precedent, yeah. you know, it's it's it seems like we we almost put ourselves in um, harder uh, resolution. Like, whereas the U.S. Constitution sort of almost has a lot more, you know, foundational challenge that you can make. Um, yeah. But much more of the American Constitution is codified. I think that's the way that 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 we would mm-hmm. put it. So uh, in your, in actually in one of your talks, and you, you brought it up briefly here, um, you know, you, you sort of parked the idea of talking about anarchism. Um, and I wondered if, if you wanted to sort of just give a, a perspective on it a little bit. One of the reasons I, I bring it up is um, I, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times because I think we, there's a colloquial use of the word and then there's the actual like use of the word, what, it, what it's intended to mean. And the colloquial use is sort of used towards lawlessness. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. But, but in, you know, the word itself means the absence of a leader. Um, yes, and, that's and right. the reason I, I want to bring that up is also there's this, I feel like culturally, especially within the Christian community, you know, we take sort of Romans 13 and, and sort of use that to say, okay, we need to create government um, as opposed to there's 
to some extent, I would argue that maybe there's an aspect where the Bible allows you to live without government if you somehow could do that. Um, because it's, you know, not to say you don't have justice and the need to, to resolute, um, but this like sort of like um, necessity to set it up. Um, and so I just wondered if, you know, some of those things you could talk through a bit. Yeah, I think I think those are two. You know, there I'm seeing two subjects here, and I can talk about <laughs> both or either if you want. You know, the I, I could we could go back to like the pre-monarchical Israelites, you know, living under the judges and and so forth. You know, and if if you'll notice in the um, in the first five books of the Bible, you know, I'm just reading through those right now. I'm at the Book of Numbers um, in my evening prayers, and um, um, you'll notice that that before the Israelites came into the land, they were to set up these cities of refuge in which, um, you know, if somebody is um, uh, inadvertently kills somebody, commits manslaughter, we would call it now, nowadays, then they could hide in the cities of refuge against the avenger of blood. This is somebody who has been hired by the injured family, if you will, to to go in and take out the person who killed the family member. You know, there's uh, the, the very chaotic time mm-hmm. in Israel's history and it, it, you know what does it say in the in the book of judges it says um uh, though the uh, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes yes that's right yeah. you know so i mean that that's that's one thing i could talk about but it it's also true that in that chaos you had leaders that were you know i i can speak like Max Weber and talk about charismatic leaders if you will you know people who rose to the top simply through um uh you know being able to uh Persuade others that God had called them to to protect them against their um, against their, their their local enemies and so forth. You know, and, and the and leaders nevertheless rise to the fore. I think something like political rule is um, is intrinsic to human life in, in community. Um, there is no such thing. The state, as we know it, is only maybe about five hundred years old. But but political authority is something that goes back almost to the beginning of humankind. And that's something that I think I think anarchists have have difficulty recognizing. Now, let me be fair to anarchism because anarchism does not mean chaos, and that and that's as I think you're saying. This is the way most people take anarchism. Anarchism it, it assumes that people um, without governing authorities will be spontaneously cooperating with each other uh, for common purposes. Uh, you know, John Locke was not an anarchist, but he did believe that something like the laws of nature would would hold for people, for the most part, even in a state of nature, but that there were certain inconveniences that people would want to try to transcend, and that's when they would set up a civil commonwealth. Uh, you know, anarchism assumes that people will spontaneously cooperate if the, um, if the, uh, uh, the obstacles to their virtues are removed from them. Now, I don't myself hold to anarchism, but I want to be fair to to anarchism as uh, as a set of of political or maybe anti political principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's something that people sort of make a either a straw man argument of usually, and it and it's sort of you know dismissed outright without even really necessarily understanding um, the positions that are truly trying to be presented. So, um, yeah, I thought you know it's it's some. It's. I think, uh, you know, for me, the the quote that a lot of li- aligns with what you've just said is like, if you think about most of our daily interactions, they would fall under what you would sort of think of as anarchist, right? There's no yeah, government intervention. Right, right. There's no p- 
people, you know, moderating, how'd you go to lunch with that guy? Or, you know, so um, there, there's sort of, I think, a disconnect between, you know, what that ideology sort of is and then what people sort of make it out to be. So, um, see, but the problem is, is that is that we have a tendency to claim more than we have a right and our communities claim more than they have a right. And that that is the sort of thing that leads to conflict. Now it may be that we can find a parallel on the on the inter, in the international realm, because you know there is no world empire. There there is no king of the world that can bring the nations of the world um, in tow, except except for Jesus Christ Himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no there's no uh, you know United Nations is certainly not a supra national political authority. It, it's never really functioned that way. Um, but nevertheless, most of the world's states are at peace with each other. And it's when there are wars, when they come to blows, that's what makes the news. So, you know, international law, there is such a thing as international law, even though there's no higher authority to step in and enforce that. And mostly international law is enforced by nations themselves, um, you know, either forming treaty relationships with each other. I think NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is almost far and away the most successful military alliance that has ever existed. You know, it's outlasted its original reason. It's it's now, what is it now? It's, it's 71 years old, and it, it's, uh, you know, communism is, is, is gone. Uh, you know, it, it now seems to exist to keep the peace within the the, the territory that's covered by the NATO countries, and, and it, you know, it seems to be doing a, a very good job of that. Uh, you know, so, but, but still, even NATO is not a supranational authority. It's an interlocking um, uh, treaty organization that holds members together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, what, but like I, I would say, I sort of associate with the more libertarian perspective, but um, the word. Oh, hold, on. I, I th- hold, on, hold on, I thought you said you don't do labels, man. I don't do labels. <laughs> like I say, I associate with that perspective, but, but the reason I was actually gonna gonna go from there is this idea i like to use the word voluntarism because it doesn't have sort of baggage and and the what's why i want to bring that up is to some extent you're talking about relationships that are all voluntarily entered and if one of the parties like nato for example decided they didn't want to be in there that would be involuntary you know there might be uh let's say contract dissolution agreements that sort of have to go along with it but in essence they're voluntarily maintaining these things um and i th- that's I think right it's on the international un- level that's true yes yeah and and i think that's something that um i'll say sometimes i i feel like a lot of people who who strive towards political solutions um sort of discredit voluntary solutions um as, as potentially being more effective yes yeah well i think i think there's something to that um you know, I think I, I would want to be careful about about trying to extend the voluntary principle too far, because you know the most the most significant institutions in our society are not are not at base voluntary in nature, and that's that's the thing that I think um, libertarians are, will have trouble um, um, accounting for, at least if they stay true to their own principles, which they probably will not. And that's one of the things that maybe if, you know, if, um, thinking about all of these ideologies that I talk about in in my book, these are as it were, pure, the pure forms, you know, so to find somebody who's a socialist, you know, and, and those are the only political principles they follow, well, you're not going to find that, you know, mm-hmm. so if, if you go south of the border where you have Republicans and Democrats, you know, well, both are 
carry forward uh, varieties of liberalism. Both are, can be conservative in some sense. I, I venture to say that there are certain, certain people in the Democratic Party that might even call themselves social democrats or, or democratic socialists, like Bernie Sanders, for example, or, well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, uh, you know, so, so in, in reality, most people are a mixture of, of various ideologies. They may tend to, to lean in one direction, but, uh, but in my book, I deal with them in, 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 in their pure forms, as it were, but, but recognize that you're probably going to meet very few people that are, that are socialists and are willing to, to, to run with their principles, um, you know, to the nth degree, even at the expense of flesh and blood human beings. Yeah, I, I've 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 a lot of times said I think for those that you know sort of tout socialism, they sort of don't really understand to some extent because they don't. What does that mean from a property rights perspective? Are you really promoting removal of property rights? And if you are, do you understand what that means? Like, you know, so I think your point's pretty pretty accurate. But they sort of still use those labels of the purest right. forms. And and for now, I mean, most socialists now, if you think about our own New Democratic Party, you know, that's Canada's socialist party. It, it used to be called the Cooperative Commonwealth before 1961. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, for uh, now, most socialists will simply say in, in somewhat vague terms that they're seeking greater economic equality. You know, so, so communal ownership of property is in the interest of equality. Um, you know, they may still be suspicious of private property, but for the most part, they're going to limit themselves to saying, well, we want to have greater economic equality. And that means, um, you know, putting more funding into the welfare state, you know, universal health care, um, Canada pension plan, and so forth, social assistance, and the like. Now, considering you taught at a Christian university at Redeemer for a right, while. right. Uh, I'm sure the issue of Romans 13, like uh, Joel brought up previously, like how do you how do you handle um, Romans 13? Because um, I'm sure your students bring it up to you. Right, Romans 13. I think it's a it's um it's it's a passage that I think um that, that we need to read. I think we need to read it very very carefully as well. It's not a it's not a blanket, um, uh, it it is not a blanket. Uh, permission for governments to do whatever they want to. If if you read it very carefully, governments are supposed to serve, and that's one thing that that really um, uh, that really uh, made an impression on me when I was about twenty or twenty-one years old. Um, I was uh, I, I did a paper. I was attending a Christian university in Minnesota uh, uh, back in the mid seventies, and I and I wrote a paper on a, on a book that was treating Romans thirteen. And and when I went back to the Greek, now I have to I have to tell you that. Um, that my my father his his mother tongue was Greek. He he grew up in the island of Cyprus and was a Greek, uh, Greek speaking. So his mother tongue was modern Greek. So I, I learned modern Greek when I was when I was a child, and then I sort of branched out from there to um, to New Testament Greek as well. So I was looking at the passage, and I noticed that the words that are spoken of for the the governing authorities, the powers that be, as the King James version puts it, you know, the their their words uh, like diakonos, which is the the word from which our word deacon comes from. These are servants of, of God, liturgos, from which our word liturgy comes from, public service, if you will. This is a, your government is, it performs a public service. In other words, you know, far from giving a blanket um, uh, allowance to, to, to tyrants, uh, this is a, a state, statement of, of the normative function of, of what political authority is supposed to be doing. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a you know what what I sort of really found interesting around Romans thirteen and and I mean I might be reading it into it a, a little bit, but if you look at the pat you know Romans twelve, you look at the latter part of Romans thirteen, you look at Romans fourteen, so much of it is about like living you know loving your neighbor, loving your brother, like living community with people, and and I see you know the role of the state in regards to you know to some extent wielding the sword to undo injustice, which obviously oversimplification, but, but I, I wonder how much, you know, people allow that to, you know, it's like, we know we, we would, I would think most Christians would say, okay, God's called to judge moral, uh, immorality or, or your, you know, sin. And that's going to happen in the day of judgment. But to some extent, it seems like we, they, there's this allowance to say, well, Romans 13 is also talking about regulating, you know, sinful behavior that doesn't necessarily involve the violation of your neighbor. Um, I, I'm wondering if you, you think that's, you know, again, I sort of use the Pauline sandwich, which where may or may not apply, of sort of what's a right around that text. Yeah, um, well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is interesting because it says, you know, I've just turned to it now, you know, it says, the twelve chap- uh, chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine, hate what is, is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. It also says, um, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, repay no one for, no one for evil, live peaceably with all. Um, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. But then we find out that, that God has instituted an authority to to exercise his wrath on those people who are who are committing unjust acts, and I see that this, Romans thirteen following from from Romans twelve in in that sense. You know, not as individuals, we're not supposed to seek to avenge ourselves, uh, but but to recognize that there are political authorities that will you know not so much avenge us but as to as to ensure that we receive justice mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. those who would who would violate our. Um, our, our property or our lives or our liberties. And I, I have a, you know, a second, I, I tend to think people's uh, default towards Roman 13 is overly simplistic. So I tend to have a bit of okay. say pushback options. The other one that I tend to like to say to people is, you know, can we really read Romans 13 without taking into consideration what's in, in first Samuel eight, when, when, you know, right. Israel's getting their first King and, yeah, and right, right. some of the, you know, let's say detrimental things that, that are going to come as a result of, of course. It. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. And I, I just wonder, yeah. you know, how, how you're from a theological perspective, you think there's, you know, some, some substance to sort of that claim that I, that I like to make. I think if we take scripture as a whole, we're going to see that, um, that political authority is not like anything else in, in, in the world is not an unmixed blessing. Uh, but neither is it an, is, is it a, um, an unmixed curse either. So you know, there, there's no perfection in this world. Uh, you know, governments are going to are going to stumble in some way. Maybe it's true. Maybe in this current lockdown, maybe governments are are um, are overextending themselves. I mean, that that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but you know, if there are cases that arise from it and that are going to be fought through the courts, my 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 guess is that that the judgment will come after the emergency is over. Uh, you know, nowadays it was it, it both in Canada and the United States courts judged that the Roosevelt and the Mackenzie King, Roosevelt administration and the Mackenzie King government, uh, uh, did wrong to to place to um, uh, put in in camps in internment camps Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians. 
you know, but you'll notice that that judgment came came after the war had ended. Uh, you know, so it it may be that that if there's going to be any kind of rectification for for what's happening right now, we may have to wait until the emergency has passed, whenever that happens. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we do see a little bit in the states where you know, through I think some of the states have sort of said the governors you know abuse their emergency powers. Some things are getting pulled back. I mean, it's not not to the fullest extent. To your point, I think you know there's only a, there's only so much you can do in the midst of trying to navigate a, a scenario like this. Um, right, right. But but right. for the most part, you only see sort of the small pieces of it. Um, but again, it wasn't in March. It was in you know the middle of the summer when when things are have sort of started to calm down. So, well, that's um, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, well, well, thank you, thank you, David, for coming on, and oh, you really welcome. appreciate your time. You're, you've been very gracious with your time, so we really yeah. appreciate it. Oh, I was happy to do so. It was good to good to get to know you and to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And um, the book, uh, political, political visions and illusions: a survey and Christian critique of contemporary ideologies uh yes very very helpful book uh in in regards to the way um i see things and me as um an educator and a podcaster and all all everything in between it's been very helpful so thank you for it you're very welcome yeah for for our listener um you know if they want to maybe follow you on social media or reach out to you what uh, what would be the way to to do that uh, well, just look up my name, David Koizis, K-O-Y-Z-I-S. There's there's no other person with that name on <laughs> earth. And I'm, I'm all over the internet. I have a blog. It's called Notes from a Byzantine Right Calvinist. Uh, mm-hmm. I have, uh, I'm, I'm also on, on Twitter. I'm on Instagram as well. Uh, LinkedIn. You know, it's, I'm fairly easy, easy to find. Okay, I'll make sure all that's in the show notes page too. So, uh, okay, and I'll great. probably give uh, listeners access to both or a, a link to both the uh, first and second editions of your book, so they can also see the the cover changes that you mentioned. Oh yeah, that's it's, right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> the smooth cover. On the I, I I really like the new cover. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I I agree. It's it's much uh, more appealing to some yeah, extent. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> It feels like you're getting a gift. Yeah. You know, it feels like you're getting a yeah. gift. It kind of freaked me out at the beginning when they showed me the cover. You know. And then, I, then, then the, the more I looked at it, I thought, "Yeah, this is perfect. This is great." So yeah, no, but 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 it's good because because the book is called Political Visions and Illusions. So when you look at the book, it's kind of blurry. It but is. Yeah. Like like the illusions is kind of blurry. So like, are you really seeing what you're supposed to be seeing, or, yeah. or what? Yeah, that's right. No, I think it's I think it's a work of genius. I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's good. That's yeah. good. Well, well, thank you again. Um, yeah, and best wishes in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes. All right. Take care. Well, you heard me? Does that make sense?